So, what I'm suggesting <coughs> to, by marginalizing Kasatu, the ANC were laying the foundations for an elite pact. Now, and this is the difficult one, I think, for you, because your close comrade and friend, Chris Haney, recognized this. He recognized this. And when Ludi Kalinikas interviewed him for four hours, eight hours, eight days, eight days before he was assassinated, he was assassinated in April, April, was it? End of March. End of March, 1993. When, um, when Ludi interviewed him, this is what he said. He said, there's a new enemy. There's a new struggle. It's a socio-economic struggle. The key danger we focus is corruption. What we need is to be open to all the movements, all the social movements, all the different strands, and build a democratic movement. In Gramscian terms, if I may revert to Marxist theory, he was shifting from the war of maneuver to the war of position. The war of maneuver was the idea that you smash the state, you overthrow it, you have an insurrection, uprising, the kind of ideas that you said drove you in the 1960s. That's the war of maneuver, smash the state. But Gramsci, writing in the 30s, realizing that it's a more complex process of transformation of capitalist society, you had to build up the trenches of civil society in order to be able to advance, and smashing the state was not, not necessarily going to create democracy that you had to build up democracy within society. Chris Haney recognized that, and he chose not to go to Parliament. He didn't go to Parliament. Instead, he said, I must go back to the base. We must build the social movements. I will become Secretary General of the South African Communist Party, and I won't take the gravy train. That was a moral and a political decision. Now, Ronnie, in retrospect, do you think the demobilization of the eternal... Look, that's, that's a slightly polemical point because I think um, it was in a process... It wasn't simply it's closing down. The process of demobilization had already begun. But do you think the demobilization of the internal movement was inevitable? Or could it have emerged as an equal partner in the post-apartheid period? Thank you. Well, just to first say thanks to both of you. Um, and uh, I, I really, Ariana, was so impressed to see that you know the book inside out and you actually <laughs> described it better than I do. Uh, thanks very much. It was very insightful. And I think you brought a tremendous freshness to the way you read it, etc. And, of course, uh, there was a good uh, division of labour here because, on the one hand, you did your work and then, for, for Eddie, um, coming in on the critique and focusing where you did, I think that was very necessary and, I would say, very rewarding for the evening that we have before us here. It will be very interesting to get uh, inputs and the questions from the floor. Um, you know, Eddie, in 1990, while I was on the run, um, I wrote a piece for work, work in progress, and it was on the need to continue to mobilize the people behind the process. And already then, one could see, in 1990, now you see, you talk about from what side of the mountain you view things, and it's very easy <laughs> to understand the metaphor in terms of being outside in exile and being in the armed struggle mainly as to being inside the country and involved as Eddie and, and Ludi had been um, so well to their credit in the emergent movement here, the trade unions, the working class particularly. 
But there's also a the difference in angles on that mountain where you can be sitting in the same suburb of Yeovil or Johannesburg and in terms of the trench that you occupy, seeing things very differently. So if you underground, rather than like my colleagues, who were now free and able to go and meet with the, the clerks and uh, so on and begin the negotiations, you see things totally differently. And Chris Harney was in uh, Umtata being protected by one Bantu Holomisa at that time, yes, and I would say very much to Holomisa's credit because we really admired him and he showed an integrity and I think the ANC under Mandela dealt very badly with him in disciplining because he said that Stella Sitkow had taken a bribe from Sol Kersner. I mean, for that he was expelled from the ANC. It's quite remarkable. Uh, I think he is a man of integrity. But Chris was um, in the Transkei with a lot of MK people and continuing to train people for the struggle. I was underground in the cities of the country. We met often under the auspices of Holomaka <coughs> in the Transkei. So we did see things in a similar way. And I wrote for that work in progress while I was in a, some safe house in Bez Valley and was very acutely sensitive to what was going on with my colleagues above board. And I knew that there were a number of them saying, what the hell is Ronnie doing in the country? And giving secret statements and messages to the press and criticizing the clerk, he should be sent out the country. That made me very sensitive to whether there were Developments, I don't want to say a sellout, um, but negative to the development of the revolution. And I was reading, funnily enough, a letter that I'd written to Eleanor. Uh, I read it just the other day. I found 23 letters, really. And I wrote to her in that period. And I, I'm reading it to put into my archive at Vits. And there's one letter that is so critical of the leadership that I'm thinking to myself, I can't, this is far too critical to put into the public domain even after my death. <laughs> and I don't like secrecy, so it will come out. But I was absolutely amazed. And if I had that and could, could have read that before I wrote the introduction, I probably would have remarked more about where you talking um, because it wasn't inevitable. The question that uh, Eddie Webster puts to me at the end, was it inevitable that we would have gone down that route? Um, and it's not that Chris Harney was assassinated uh, as an explanation of why it wasn't challenged more. In other words, this elitist pact that was taking place, which is what I deal with the introduction. Um, it, it wasn't on the cards, it wasn't written as a destiny, but what I say in the introduction, and I now, as a Ronnie, Casrol's Red Ronnie, I emerge after a year of underground being sensitive to it. And now I'm with the leadership and I'm under the very strong control of Nelson Mandela, who on a number of issues, unlike Oliver Tambo, uh, is not one to allow debates to go on and on. And in fact, the non-negotiable statement of Mandela in relation to gear is where we were told in no uncertain terms in 1996 that we were going for gear, and that meant the end to the RDP of Jay Nardin, and nobody could argue with Madiba. And everybody was on board, and to actually stand up against a leadership which is so strong and united, and with such a tall man, such a big man as Mandela, 
and to go down in flames and to be prepared to get out of that movement at that time because he wanted to disagree was not an easy thing because you see at the end of the day you would think well I'm minister of water and forests or I was deputy defense I'm doing something good and I'm getting on with that job um, but I'm very strong in the self-critique of saying how could have we communists marxists people who who prided ourselves on being marxists let alone left or social democratic anc how could we allow a situation to take place where under mandela we put clause three of the freedom charter the economic clauses the clause on the back burner and nationalization was then a dirty word and it's left to the red beret young man Malema to capture it now uh, and come out with it because the communist party and the anc just left it in the lurch this is the problem and this is what i'm saying in terms of where we might differ because i agree with so much of what you've said the Gramscian aspect and so on um, the question which i had a short chat with Lulie beforehand trying to find out what you were going to say. So, <laughs> but, uh, no, just in my, a loyal wife, my discussion, yeah. I know we're going on a bit long here, but I, I, I agree that we made a major error in, in uh, after 1990 and the 94 period, the negotiation period, that um, the trade unions and the working class, yes, the Communist Party were there, and Chris was there, in 93 but there was the demobilization of the internal forces in the country who had been so vital to bringing about the change i think that's a major error um, now eric hobsbawm the great historian has said that it's no good looking back in history and saying well if we hadn't done this and we hadn't done that if only we we'd taken a different decision uh things could be so much better and he goes on to basically say that well that's futile exercise get on with putting things right now um i've got to go back to eric hobsbawm in terms of what he means by that because you see where i agree with you in unpicking or unpacking the the things that we missed the mistakes that we made back in the 1990s helps us to put things right now now i don't want to go into a long lecture but one of those things that we need to learn is the organized disciplined working class in the trade union movement needing to be to the fore under political leadership I'm not saying Communist Party or ANC, but trade unions must be, and it's the working class and it's organized labor, that if we're going to put things right, we must learn that lesson, that we demobilized our people at that stage. And the whole challenge for us now, which is why my view is we've got to look into, from the Communist Party to the ANC to Kasatu, and I go much further, I talk about the left forces, the pro-socialist forces of our country, that we've got to open up a debate and ask why is it that we are not getting on top of the poverty problem, the poor education, the unemployment, etc. What is it? What is needed? The kind of debate we're having tonight. The only, the final point that I'd like to say, which I didn't hear from you, uh, were you analyzing what the major error is what i'm saying the major error is is that we have moved in terms of the economic model and i'm not calling for the east european socialist model but that we took a decision and it started after madiba comes back from davos in 1992 and he says that we can't talk about nationalization that the question of taking over the mines and the rights of the economy this will ruin us we won't get um, and this is the silver bullet that's talked about 
direct foreign investment, as though that's the answer to our problems and not the working class and the working people united with the alliances of the patriots of a country to seize by steps the control of the economic, economic hearts of our country. And I'm not saying you nationalize everything like Mileva is saying, but where we have the strategic control. And if we've got mineral wealth, then a man called Chavez understood that his country's oil wealth <laughs> meant that the control of that oil wealth could really begin to deal with the economic problems of that country. And Latin American countries are showing that this is the way. And my last favorite example of it, I know we're giving examples outside Africa, but it's little Norway and Britain, which isn't very great. But they discover oil in the late 50s, early 60s, in the lake between them, the North Sea, rich in oil. And Britain goes the privatized route and it's made, like is happening in our country through mineral wealth, it makes a small, hugely prosperous group of the wealthy in the country linked to the, the wealthy capitalists of the world. And the rest of the country and the people suffer. Norway, across that lake, they nationalized their oil. They set up the Norwegian Oil Fund. And one-third of the GDP of Norway goes into creating the infrastructure, the social um, provisions for the people of Norway, and that oil has helped them. So this is where I see the main problem. Uh, it is in the demobilization factor, but it's got to link in to the kind of economic system that we have in this country. And I'm all for going through the building of the alliance for that in mind. Thank you. Zimbabwe, I'm a PhD student here trying to reframe leadership. 
issues in Zimbabwe. I'm saying, um, to what extent is your thinking uh, prepared to call the Zimbabwe group? We have seen what has happened in Zimbabwe, the nationalization that has taken place in Zimbabwe, the reforms, the poor, poor reforms that have taken place in Zimbabwe, and the way they have been condemned in terms of its radical nature. And I'm saying now, just, uh, if we had those uh, agreements during the struggle that they are going to move on and uh, probably call poor uh, poor, change uh, the, the, the power relations, change the economic relations, to what extent are you prepared as South Africa to take the Thank you. Um, as a member of the working class and next uh, uh, to Dawson, I joined them in the late 80s as a teenager or late teens, uh, really my age in the process. Um, I've noted that selectivity among yourself, not only yourself but other members of the alliance, and um, that is in your selectivity in criticizing certain countries. You criticize Israel, and there's a certain amount of justification in that. I don't hear you criticize Cuba, I don't hear you criticize the detention of Hector Palacios, the other Cuban dissidents, the um, lack of freedoms. In your book, your criticism of the GDR was very rooted, and it seemed to come at the very end. Uh, you hook, line, and sink it, except that the uh, explanation by the East Germans that the war was there, the border was there to keep the um, evil West Germans out, etc., etc. So there seems to be a selectivity when, a selectivity when it comes to advocating liberty and human rights. Um, as for a command economy, um, the, I have a relative who is in Parliament there is in, in the South American theatre. Uh, uh, Chavez had to import refined oil, petrol, from the US uh, in his last months in government. Uh, that despite any oil reserves second to Saudi Arabia. So, so much for the planned economy, the central economy. Um, not, I'm not terribly impressed with it, and I think we've seen what's happened in Eastern Europe. Um, that's basically, yeah, so that's what I have to ask. And um, a few other questions, but I'm going to hold the microphone. I think there's a number of other people. Do you want to answer first, or can we go another one? Uh, maybe we take three at a time, otherwise three, people okay, will forget. Yeah, yeah I think okay. three at a time. Do you guys want to answer you go any? Yeah. 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 yeah, thanks. Um, just thanks very much for the comment from the frontier. A decision really on struggle. As I understood you, you asked um, how the comrades outside the country responded to the decision we took inside the country um, to embark on armed struggle, which was the case in December 1961 when MK announced its existence. The decisions were taken in the course of that year. Um, we were the first of us were recruited in about December 1961 into MK. Um, at that stage, there weren't many people outside the country. It wasn't like the exile situation in later years. Um, certainly, there were just a very few leaders like Tambo and Dadu had been sent out uh, just after Sharpeville to set up the ANC presence outside the country. And of course, the ANC and the Communist Party had people traveling from here abroad, and they would meet Dadu and Tambo in London and explain to them uh, what the thinking was. And they, in fact, endorsed the decision that way. Um, so th this was the situation. It wasn't that we had many of our members outside. Uh, within the country, discussions took place amongst leaders. Um, we see this in Mandela's book, but it was also taking place amongst younger people in what we call Soweto today, mainly in the black areas, people there realizing the need to resort to violent forms of struggle and not just the non-violent struggle methods that had existed for almost 49 years, in fact 50 years virtually, of the ANC's existence. The second question about ZIM. Um, you see, the main problem that I think we have with 
what's taking place in Zimbabwe in latter years. It started off in 1980 and for about 10 or more years the developments there were very good and we see this particularly in terms of education uh, and in health and you see results of this to this day among Zimbabweans coming to this country um, they've really benefited from that education system. I lived in Zimbabwe with a number of comrades here during the 80s and the health system was functioning very well. The key problem, and this is a question which we have to understand when we view other countries, um, is that the lack of democratic practice within ZANU and then amongst people within the country saw this with the emergence of the opposition there, MDC, um, the intolerance and so on. This is something which endangers the very freedom and democracy which we're meant to be building and developing. So this is a key problem. Um, the issue of land is a very real issue in Zimbabwe, more than in South Africa even. I'm not saying it's not here, but much more because there's much more of a peasant-based people in Zimbabwe. And uh, this question of control of the land, dealing with the needs of the people, is something which one understood. But again, the methods in which this was implemented um, was a resort to unnecessary violence and thuggery, which has created such a problem. And in dealing with the MDC as well. And you know, when we talk about the need for tolerance in in society, it's Chris Hani, who I always think of. It's not just because we all love Chris Hani. I'm being very honest with you. Because when we came back into the country, Chris was the first of the ANC and the party comrades, leaders all rank and file, who said we must be tolerant of opposing views. It was that kind of a person. And he used to mention this in exile as well, when there were debates and there was sometimes angry disagreement. It brings me to the last um, question, the selectivity in dealing with countries where um, you say we're very muted in our critiques of countries like, say, Cuba, you might add Vietnam, um, and African countries and so on. But you see, in relation to a world view, in terms of forces that are dominating the world, and you might disagree with me, of course, but imperialist forces led by the United States and the Pax Americana, um, that these are the forces and have been together with Israel dictating the situation from Afghanistan to Iraq to Libya to Syria, the Palestine-Israeli situation. And in fact, the very forces that from the inception of the Cuban revolution were hell-set on smashing socialism in Cuba. So yes, every one of these states, and of course if we're dealing with despotic states, such as Syria and Iraq and the Saddam and so on, the um, problems there and the tyranny is far worse than a Vietnam or a Cuba, and actually even far worse than Zimbabwe. But in the big picture, in relation to where we stand in the world and where we stood in this whole period which my book covers, we're looking at revolution and we're looking at repression. We're looking at change and we're looking at the conservative forces that want to keep people under the control that they were from colonial times and so on. And it then is a question of who is standing for emancipation and liberation of people and countries to be truly independent. And in relation to this, 
I have absolutely no apology in what I write and what I say to stand with those that are for the emancipation of humanity against those yeah well you know, don't, I don't expect you to believe me uh, and agree with me I'm answering you and I'm saying where I stand I see where you stand and I'm not condemning you it's a debate I'm not wanting to make you feel bad it's your, your views but these are class differences that we have that you have and that I have and that's the side that I'm on and I will be on that side until my dying day because I stand for that and, I, and we are critical of people who we allied with so there's that critique which Professor Webster made reference to which uh, our young lady did here about the GDR about the Soviet Union and in a period when I wrote this book, the Soviet Union no longer exists, we were fighting a life and death struggle against apartheid. And apartheid, Pretoria, supported by the Americans and the British and West Germany and the French. And our friends from Cuba to China to Vietnam to the Soviet Union were standing with us and were giving us all the assistance to overthrow this racist regime in South Africa. So on that basis, I would be careful in the way I formulated my critique. I do say this, that in looking at the book, that I could have, if I was writing it today, I probably would have been somewhat stronger in the critique. But I was writing this book mainly in a period where that life and death struggle was very, very vicious. But as I say this, and we look at this benighted world today, and what American imperialism and Western capital is doing to the rest of the world, I've got absolutely no hesitation in branding them the forces of evil, and that I will stand with those who are standing for human liberty. Did you want to answer any of these? Um, Sorry, I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, okay, on David Webster, who was assassinated on the 1st of May 
and that obviously pushes the price up. We then push up production. So there is an amount, there is a degree of... So you agree with me? They, they, they try and control... We should control the supply demand. Well, that's what they're doing. I mean, they do control the price. No. But you can't have another raw at its own. No, no, I'm not controlled by one or two gentlemen in London. I mean, we the people. We the people. Not, and I, I, mean, I, I, I don't... You know, nationalisation, I don't particularly... The word nationalisation doesn't really attract me, actually. Because that often ends up with a small group in, in the state controlling it. Instead of... What, what, I'm, what I'm talking about, something that's democratically controlled. For me, you know, if, 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 if there is an alternative to capitalism, and if it's socialism, it's not socialism unless it's democratic. It's got to be democratic. That, to me, is the key point. So my response to I think it's a wonderful, wonderful argument of yours. We should we could we can control the price of platinum by by holding back when when we want to push up the price and put it on the market. You want to lower that, but the benefits of that, the surplus, must come to the people of Southern Africa. Yeah. Yes. Well, we seem to be on the same side now. I mean, I think that that's. I think that that's. Anyway, that that would be. I think that 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 would have been the kind of path that our radical gentleman over here is suggesting. That would be the path that we could have taken with our platinum industry. Yeah. Good evening. My name is Hamilton Marks. Dr. Fatfield, with your introduction of uh, Mr. Ronald Castles, you introduced him as he was a member of the ANC, he was a member of the Communist Party. Please correct me on that one. And then uh, also, uh, Ronnie said that uh, the ANC has a collective leadership. And we are there to understand that Issues are robustly discussed, issues are interrogated, and yet they allowed Madiba to get away with the issue of nationalization. That does not necessarily mean that I support nationalization, but then uh, uh, I'll take the AIDS denialism of Taubombeki, where everybody was scared to challenge him on the, on the subject. Uh, it was muted. Okay, so I, I don't seem to understand this uh, collective sharing of ideas and, and interrogation of, of issues. And then Professor Webster, I kind of liked his idea of uh, the demise of uh, social movements like the UDF, which was a strategy by the ANC uh, to get rid of the UDF, because the UDF uh, was the coal face of the struggle. Uh, the, the, the other issue that Professor Webster brought up is the um, Krasani issue. And here again, uh, it, brings, it makes me think of a JFK scenario where Krasani was regarded as a threat because he wanted to get back to base and somebody, it, you know, it, it was an inside job. This has been a conspiracy theory, but uh, uh, that kind of argument gives credence to that conspiracy theory, that there's a much bigger picture out there. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you very much. My name is Stefan Pauli. Different to the two gentlemen here, I wasn't sitting close to the mountain but a little bit far away from the mountain, watching both sides as a foreign correspondent. And my first question is, wasn't it a strategic mistake? I think that's more for Professor Webster. Wasn't it a strategic uh, mistake that the labor movement uh, basically joined in and was overshadowed by the ANC instead of, instead of keeping their own ideas for themselves and being in possibly in an alliance, but not overshadowed by a political party. And the second question to Ronnie Catherells, I think I asked you that about 20 years ago. Um, the labor movement, they have their own leaders. You can see that worldwide. Do they really need a political party 
to tell them which way to go, or shouldn't they also go with their own leaders that they have, that come from within their own ranks and not from ideological things? I'm not against parties or something like that, but I don't think that the labor movement needs to be told by anybody which way to go. And I didn't get this answer 20 years ago. I would be interested if I get it now. And Professor Wexford, just as an additional remark to that, you mentioned Norway. In Norway, it weren't the political parties to go for this solution that has this fund that goes even for 100 years ahead, what is a great thing. It was very much the labor movement itself who made that deal with the political parties as it was independent, as an independent labor movement, and not part of an, a political group that is overshadowed by one party. One more question. Thank you. Um, Mr. Kasu, you mentioned something that, uh, or something, um, one of the, our main concerns as young people, that um, today we are living at a time whereby people are forgotten what the struggle was all about. Um, which is, I think, where I, the way I view it. Um, also, Professor mentioned the issue of our own resources. Uh, currently, we are saying, yes, we are living in a democratic uh, nation. I remember um, the president on his national address 2009, he said, we need to develop a collective um, nation, national will in order to change the economy of South Africa. Also ensuring that we are all sharing equitable um, benefit, especially the poor people. Um, I'm living in an area whereby um, almost there are nine, I think five mines. But if you're looking at the area and even the schools around, there's no even a progress. Also, you're looking also, as, as Professor mentioned, that that airline's resources has been already extracted, but there is no benefit for the community around. Um, then you question that, also again, if you investigate some of those uh, mine owners, um, more people that are, belo are belonging to the government, that they fought for us. Then you tend to question whether the aim was really um, to fight for the apartheid system with no action plan after that. Because right now, it seems like there's, uh, there have been so much. I, I look at the document of the Indianization Action Plan of 2011 and 2012. I went to the document of the National Advanced Manufacturing um, Strategy that also was developed in 2003. We aim that. Um, the minerals of South Africa, we have to, um, lead, okay, instead of us actually exporting it, um, being able to make it to the final product. But then again, my challenge as a young person, I'm trying to find out is that really, it seems like those people, they've forgotten. Their comrades have forgotten what the struggle was all about. Maybe, I'm asking to you, uh, Mr. Lomi, maybe it's us young people saying, maybe not understanding the struggle. But where we're seeing it, where with everything that's happening around, we think they have already missed the point. Thank you. I wanted to respond to three. Uh, yeah. Um, firstly, on the question of uh, of, of Chris Hardy's assassination, uh, I don't. Uh, if if the implication of your question was that it was an internal to the to the ANC, then I, I, I don't see any uh, evidence for that. I thought that it had been clearly, clearly established who the killers of Chris Hani were. That's uh, Darby Lewis and Janus Wallace, uh, who assassinated him, and they're still in prison. Uh, I think that for me, the, the significance of the reason why they assassinated him is because at the, uh, the Congress of uh, 1992, the ANC Congress, he got the second highest votes. In other words, he, he was the second most popular to Nelson Mandela. And had he, had he lived, he would have taken us, I think, in the direction that Ronnie's implying. 
I don't think it would have been a revolutionary socialist path, by the way. I think it would have been a sort of social democratic path, uh, given the global context. But that's just an, an opinion. But I, I think that I think it's it's straightforward why Chris Hardy was assassinated. He was a threat to the establishment uh, in South Africa. That, that's my view, um, and I and that's why they're still inside. Um, the, the question about the Kasatu strategic mistake, I, I think. You know, when Kasatu entered in alliance in November 1985 with the ANC, and when, when Jay and I went to Lusaku and they started their first conversations, the understanding was quite unequivocal on Kasatu's part. This was an equal partnership. That's the key point. So, and I think that um, it's. I think what happened when the ANC came to power, it became the hegemonic because it now controlled the state. And it is difficult to retain that kind of equality between the two. Uh, so I, I think the, the question for me is, 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 um, is, is, is not, you know, I, I look upon the, the alliance a, a bit like a, a, a Catholic marriage. I think, you know, that you, you can have affairs on the side, but you're not going to be able, there's no divorce. There's no divorce. I think that the, uh, the, the, the I think that there's a, you can redefine that relationship, and I think that that's the issue, to have a more equal relationship. But that's, again, an interesting. Just the, the, the final point about uh, Norway. Oh, okay. That was a wonderful uh, example. And who, who, uh, who was the gentleman who met? Was it about Norway? Because that, yeah, that it came out of, it wasn't a particular political party, uh, uh, it was a more of a national movement that was saying these are our resources that belong to the people of Norway. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is really dealt with everything. Um, I, I would say to the first uh, questioner, thank you very much. Um, you talk about whether I'm a member of the ANC Communist Party or not. Uh, maybe it was implied in your statement, your question. But I was introduced by Dr. Annette Janssen van Furen in terms of the book and what I had been. She's got no idea whether I'm a member of the ANC or the Communist Party. She didn't even ask me. And when she said in that period he has been, a, you know, this in the ANC and that in the Communist Party, I didn't feel I had to jump up and say, um, Professor, I still am a member. But, you know, in terms of your inquiry, I'm not a member in the sense of belonging to any organised structure anymore of the ANC or the Communist Party, but I consider myself a member. Um, I don't pay subs, but I, I don't think that many people in the ANC and the Communist Party pay subs anymore. Um, I certainly don't see at present, I don't see any, and this is something that's worthy of, of, of discussion, obviously at other occasions, etc. I don't see any force in this country outside of what's called the Tripartite Alliance, Kusato included, that can bring about the possibility of change. Certainly not the opposition and not the DA, business persons party and so on. And which is why for me, I feel that we need to do what we can to revitalize that alliance, which is, you, you, you quoted me having written that. On the question of um, Chris Hanley's assassination, as with Professor Webster, there's never been anything to show anyone within the movement responsible for this. And it's been quite clear who the killers were. I know where the rumour's coming from, and I see you putting up your hand. And I want to say this, because the Young Communist League often mentioned Tabo Mbeki. And that is, well, this is rubbish. It's just such nonsense. Why Tabo Mbeki? Because they were rivals. You know, when Chris Harney decided in 19... I think it's 1992, 91-92, that he would stand as Secretary General of our party. I was very much part of the leadership and a supporter and very close to Chris. 
and um, not terribly uh, in favor of Tabo Mbeki, a man who I've always respected and a brain that I've respected. I'm not saying that agree with. And I said to Chris, do you realize, Chris, by now standing to be the leader of the Communist Party, you're giving up any possibility of being the leader of the ANC. And I said to him, and you're leaving it to Tabo. Tabo Ubeki knew that, as everybody knew, that the moment Chris became the leader of the Communist Party, that there's no way in South Africa that we know, unless there'd been a mighty red revolution, that uh, Chris could have then rivaled him for leadership of the ANC. So it just really doesn't, doesn't stand up. And then to my dear friend, uh, Stefan, you said 20 years ago that you asked me the question about why, as I recall, the Kasatu leadership had to follow a leadership of the ANC and the Communist Party and so on. Eh? Well, the reason isn't that that was being forced on Kusatu at that time, but it is used the word hegemony, the leadership, the domination, the heights of the state and that control. Within that alliance, within the struggle, the Communist Party and the ANC, there was such an aura about that leadership and the underground party and ANC and MK, that when we came back, and exile leaders, when we came back, it's not that the exile leadership had to conspire. How would we dominate? From the time we were <coughs> meeting from Jay to Cyril Ramaphosa and Sidney Mufamadi, people, whether we were in the, the country underground meeting them or they came to Lusaka or London, they simply accepted that leadership and ANC Communist Party. So I would say that the answer is more that in terms of that alliance and the liberation struggle as it was, that um, people looked naturally to the ANC and the party leadership. And if you were from the working class, you look to the party as your leadership, and that's where you wanted to take your line. The general masses of our country and the UDF people and so on, they look to the ANC. It happened that way. I think what's been happening now, because of the way the ANC's leadership has been behaving and the way the integrity has been eroding, that People now, and we see this with Comrade Vavi, whatever the question of, of his dalliance with a lady which was stupid at work, that we've seen over the last year, especially with the Zuma leadership, that there is from the working class, from within the trade union, more of a concern about that leadership. And I think this is a good thing, not that I'm anti or pro Zuma, but that we're coming closer to what you're talking about. That if we are to move towards, which I would hope to see in my lifetime, which is soon coming to an end given the, the, the age that I'm in my old bones, but that we should move towards socialism. And even if it's a social democratic um, outcome, I would greatly prefer that to the kind of mishmash that we have in the country at the moment, not using a very political term there, but you know what I mean by mishmash. <laughs>